0: This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from Indicloud. Is Indicloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. Head over to intocloud.co/spring24. That's co, com, to snag 30% off your first order. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. Tonight, we're covering a 23-year-old unsolved disappearance, and this story has no shortage of crazy findings along the way. Diane Agat disappeared on April 10th, 1998, never to be seen again. But even more bizarre than her disappearance would be the evidence collected relating to what happened to her— Yet, even with a ton of findings, there haven't been any leads or suspects to this day. I'm sharing this story tonight in hopes of bringing more attention to Diane's disappearance, which has largely gone unreported. This unsolved case is also one we'll be walking through over on my Patreon group, so if you're not in there yet, you're going to want to be. Search for Serial Society True Crime Discussion Group on Facebook, or check the link in my show notes. Before we jump in, tonight's episode is sponsored by one of Serial Napper's favorites, O'Brien Garage Doors. Listen up, guys. Your garage door needs maintenance, just like any other part of your home. Just because it's not all up in your face doesn't mean it's not important. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably just as paranoid as I am, right? Well, did you know that most break-ins through the garage door are due to homeowner negligence? Keeping your garage door in proper working order is essential to keeping your home safe. That's where O'Brien Garage Doors can help. They're a family-owned and operated garage door company that provide residential garage door services, including repair, sales, installation, and more. And it's only $49.50 to get your garage door checked out and tuned up. Visit O'BrienDoor.com or you can search for them on Google at O'Brien Garage Doors near me to schedule your service right on their website. That's O'BrienDoor.com. All right, let's jump in. Now, surprisingly, there isn't a whole lot known about our victim here. I did do a lot of scouring, and a lot of the information seems to have been kept mostly private. This could be due to the mental disorder that Diane suffered from. Maybe her family wanted to protect her privacy. I'm not too sure. But what we do know is that Diane Agat was born on February 21st, 1958. Diane grew up in New York, however, the family would end up relocating to Odessa, Florida. She loved camping, fishing, and music, and she was very active and happy. She had this beautiful head of red hair and a dazzling smile. She was your typical teenager growing up. But behind that smile, Diane did struggle with mental health issues, and in the late 1980s, she was diagnosed as being manic depressive. This is a very serious diagnosis. Mania often involves sleeplessness, sometimes for days, along with hallucinations, psychosis, grandiose delusions, or paranoid rage. And the lows, well, they resemble that of severe depression. The person can go from feeling like they are absolutely invincible to feeling anxious, empty, and suicidal. It's not uncommon for those with manic depressive disorder to be hospitalized at least once or twice in their lifetime. And it's not something that can be fixed. It needs to be managed every day by medication. Diane was prescribed medication for her disorder. However, she was known to take it sporadically, which isn't effective and can actually make the symptoms worse. Because of this, she really started to struggle as she got older. But before things really began to fall apart she fell in love and got married to a man named Frederick Augat and together they had three children two girls and a boy. She was said by those who knew her to be a doting mother and she was able to keep her disorder under control for the most part. She was a housewife and she enjoyed taking care of the children but of course in the background she still struggled just to keep everything together. On the best of days, this disorder can be difficult, but as I mentioned, Diane often skipped her medication, and she began to rely more on alcohol and drugs to soothe herself. Drugs and alcohol aren't great for anyone without a disorder. However, for someone with manic depressive disorder, they can absolutely wreak havoc in someone's life. And that's exactly what happened with Diane. She was arrested several times for petty crimes and was taken into custody under the state's Baker Act at least 32 times, which means she was involuntarily instituted for inpatient care at a mental health center. I mentioned that most suffering from manic depressive disorder will be hospitalized at least once in their life. Well, Diane's disorder was so severe that she was hospitalized 32 times over about seven or eight years. In 1998, Diane was accused of child abuse, but not in the way that you would think. She allegedly had sought an excessive amount of unneeded treatment for one of her children. I couldn't find any further details about what exactly she did, but it was obviously enough for the state to pursue charges against her. Of course, this immediately brings to mind the story of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, whose mother went on for many years convincing doctors that her child was sick, sick enough to get really invasive treatments, even going as far as to get a feeding tube in her stomach. We now know that this type of behavior is actually a mental illness called Munchausen by proxy. And in the situation with Diane, it was likely linked to her manic depressive disorder. Diane would ultimately be acquitted of these charges, however, the state continued to pursue a case against her. And so, the children were removed from her custody, and Diane, she relapsed, and she was institutionalized once again. At the end of March 1998, Diane was released from the mental health center, and she moved in with her sister, Deborah. Deborah lived in Odessa as well, near Diane's home, but felt that it would be best if Diane moved in with her just for a while so that she could keep an eye on her. Diane had a history of relapsing, and the family thought that, especially this time, she was being released too early. They felt that Diane should have remained institutionalized. On April 10, 1998, Deborah, Diane's sister, left the house briefly. When she returned home, Diane wasn't there. Of course, this was concerning, but not unusual for Diane. So initially, the family didn't panic. They figured that they would hear from Diane soon enough. Now here's what we know about where Diane went according to witness statements. It was around 11 a.m. that day when Diane took off from her sister's home. At some point during the day, she visited a bar called Hayloft Tavern, where a bartender remembers serving her alcohol until she began acting really strange and pacing in circles. Again, not a surprise here. She would have been fairly medicated, which doesn't mix well with alcohol. The bartender described her as wearing shorts, a white tank top, and having coral red nail polish on her fingernails and when she was cut off from the alcohol, Diane took off down the road. Diane's family would report her missing the next day on April 11th when they still hadn't heard from her. In the late afternoon on April 11th, around 4 p.m., a passing motorist claims to have seen her walking along U.S. 19. At this point, she still hadn't reached out to her family, so they had no idea where she was or where she might be heading, But we would later find out that between April 11th and the 14th, Diane was seen at the Coral Sands Motel, which has since been torn down, unfortunately. This is unfortunate because, as it would turn out, this hotel would be one of the last locations Diane would ever be seen at. There are also very few details that have been released about these sightings at the motel, which, again, is unfortunate. I don't know if it was shoddy police work at the time or if the police just haven't released the details, but my gut feeling is it's the first one. We have this bipolar woman with a criminal history, a drug and alcohol addiction. She's been in and out of a mental institution, and she was just recently released. Police probably figured at the time that she would eventually turn up, and so it's likely they didn't put a whole lot of effort into the early investigation. On April 14th, a waitress saw Diane eating lunch at the Inn on the Gulf Hotel, which is a different hotel than the one that she was believed to be staying at. And this is the very last eyewitness sighting of Diane. That evening, Diane's mother Mildred arrived home to find one new message on her voicemail. She hoped it was Diane, as none of her family had heard from her in a few days now. And it was Diane, However, the message that played back was horrifying. It was Diane's voice crying out, help, help, let me out. Then some shuffling noises that sounded like someone was trying to take the phone away from her. Then Diane's voice again on the line saying, hey, give me that, and the call ended. Mildred immediately tried to call the number back right away, but there was no answer. It was then that the family knew They had to contact the police to push them even further about Diane's disappearance. Clearly, she was in some sort of trouble. The police came, they took a report, and they listened to the distressing voicemail. They attempted to trace the call, however, they weren't able to, and again, no one was picking up at the other end of the line when they tried to dial back the phone number. This was 1998, so this sort of thing was more difficult, apparently. Mildred did have caller ID, though, and it said it came from Starlight. That's it, just Starlight, which was thought to be a business in the area. However, there were at least six businesses in the greater city that had the word Starlight in them, and none of these businesses were in Odessa. That's not to say that she couldn't have been calling from outside of the city, but either way, this was unfortunately a dead end. Nobody could trace it back to what Starlight meant or where it was, And things were about to get even more strange. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years, with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go. And they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factor's no prep, no mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes? Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factor's chef crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factor's fresh, never frozen meals On Wednesday, April 15th, five days now that Diane has been missing, a human finger was found along U.S. Route 19 near New York Avenue. A woman was walking to work when she spotted something strange that she initially thought might just be a toy. When she got closer, it appeared to be a human finger, but she convinced herself that it just couldn't be, so she left it there. When she got home later that day, she told her boyfriend about it. She just couldn't get the thought out of her head. What if it really was a finger? So she had her boyfriend go back and look for it. And when he did, he found it and he discovered that, yep, it was a real finger. And the nail was painted with that same red nail polish. So he immediately reached out to police to let them know what he had discovered. Police arrived on scene, recovered the finger, and began to run the prints against potential matches in their system. Remember, Diane had been arrested in the past, so her fingerprints were in police records. Because of this, they got a hit, and that finger was positively identified as belonging to Diane. The red nail polish also matched up to that eyewitness testimony given by the bartender who had served her on April 10th, the day she'd gone missing. Of course, this was alarming news, especially when combined with that voicemail. Clearly, Diane was in some sort of danger, and police put out a statement saying that they didn't believe Diane had left on her own. They would say in a news conference, she apparently did not have a vehicle. She either hitchhiked or got rides from friends. And even if she did go willingly, Diane was clearly off her medication. She hadn't taken it with her which means she would not be acting in the right frame of mind. She'd be taking risks and doing things that aren't safe. She was obviously drinking, and she was possibly even using drugs. Police searched the area surrounding where the finger was found, but there was no other trace of Diane. However, it was discovered that at some point between April 10th and 18th, someone had burglarized Diane's home. Police weren't able to say exactly when it happened, what was taken, or if it had anything to do with Diane's disappearance, but it sure is an unusual coincidence, don't you think? Clearly, Diane is not of her own free will, and it would be easy enough to find out where she lives, break in, and take anything of value. But Diane was also known to hang out with the younger crowd who liked to party. So it's speculated that they may have just noticed that Diane hadn't been home in some time and decided to break in, party, and take whatever they wanted. With all of these strange and scary findings, Diane's disappearance began to make news all across the state of Florida. Everyone was puzzled as to what may have happened to Diane. Now, things get a little wishy-washy here. A lot of it is really unclear, but I'll try to make sense out of as much as I can. There's a lot of information floating around out there and a lot of inconsistencies, which is really unfortunate because there does seem to be a ton of evidence in this case, but not a lot of clarity. A couple of weeks after the finger was found... Debra, Diane's sister, was at work at a convenience store in Odessa called the Totally Convenience Store. The manager on shift discovered a plastic bag of neatly folded clothing that was hidden inside the outdoor freezer behind the store. She thought this was really strange because what the heck and she showed the clothing to Debra. Deborah said she immediately recognized the clothes as belonging to Diane because she had recently given these items to her sister. Yeah, so let that sink in for just a minute. Diane has been missing for some time now, and her disappearance is starting to get more coverage. It's already really eerie with that phone call and the finger being found on the side of the road. Now, a bag of her clothing has been found inside the outdoor freezer behind a convenience store. Is someone playing with the police and the family? It doesn't seem likely that Diane would have placed it there herself. And someone would have noticed it before, if it was put there before Diane went missing, right? I did read one article that said, the staff at the convenience store hadn't checked the freezer in about three weeks. So they couldn't determine when the bag of clothes was put there. And I couldn't find anything else to back that up. So we just don't really know. And that seems to be a huge problem in this case. There's so many details, but so many inconsistencies. The police interviewed about 100 people. They talked to anyone who may have seen Diane or could be connected to her disappearance. But all roads came to a dead end, and the case went completely cold for two years. Then, in the year 2000, another strange discovery was made, Shortly after, Diane's disappearance made front-page news of the Tampa Bay Times. Diane's brother's girlfriend, Terry Wilson, was at a Circle K convenience store in Pasco, Florida, when she said she spotted a plastic bag with the name Diane written in black sharpie sitting on the lottery counter. Now, I don't know if she just grabbed it, if she asked the counter clerk about it or what, But she apparently thought it looked suspicious, so she took the bag home and showed it to Diane's mother, Mildred. Inside of this bag was a tube of lipstick, a bottle of taboo perfume, and a container of generic toothpaste. The toothpaste was supposedly the same brand and type that had been issued by the mental facility that Diane was recently released from, just weeks before her disappearance. Mildred, she identified the items in the bag as belonging to Diane. Okay, let's pause here again for a second because this story is just crazy. First of all, the day after this newspaper about Diane's disappearance comes out, front page news, why is it Diane's brother's girlfriend who finds this bag of supposed belongings at some random Circle K convenience store? That sounds a little suspicious, doesn't it? Secondly, if I was at a convenience store and I saw this Ziploc bag at this random store it was at and it had the name Diane on it, and Diane is a pretty popular name, I don't think I would just assume that it might be hers and take it. Like, where is the connection? Did police talk to the convenience store clerk to back up her story? Something's just really off about this whole thing. It doesn't appear that she or the brother were ever pursued as a person of interest, but that whole story is highly suspicious. Let me know what you think. Now, apparently, this Circle K, it's located in an area that Diane used to frequent a lot. So, three months before she went missing... She had been picked up by the police in the same neighborhood because she was seen just wandering around in a manic state. So maybe, just maybe, this is one of the biggest coincidences ever. Maybe Diane left a bag of her stuff there and it just so happened to turn up two years later. And it just so happened to be seen by Diane's brother's girlfriend. We just don't know. But I just don't get it. Why would it take two years for the Ziploc bag to turn up if it's something that Diane had left behind herself. Now let's talk about the only known suspect that has ever been connected to Diane's disappearance, a man named Gary Robert Evers. Gary was the manager at that Coral Sands Motel, which is the motel that Diane was believed to have been staying at before she went missing. This guy had a criminal history, and I guess maybe his story just wasn't adding up. He was never charged in connection with Diane's disappearance, so whatever the police did have on him, we don't know, and we'll likely never know because obviously it wasn't enough to move forward with a charge. Well, on June 27, 2001, three years after Diane went missing, there was an armed robbery at the motel. These gunmen that broke in, they wore masks and they beat Gary's girlfriend at the time. They really hurt her. They nearly left her for dead. But Gary interrupted them, yielding his own gun, and the robbers fled. Well, Gary, he believed he knew who one of the gunmen was, a 26-year-old man by the name of Todd Cammers. So he decided to invite Todd over to interrogate him the next day. Gary tied this man up and put a gun in his face. And even though Todd denied having been involved in the robbery, Gary shot him in the face and upper body. There was a witness who apparently seen this or heard the gunshots and called police. And Gary, he was arrested and charged with murder. Side note, it turned out that the man he killed, Todd Cammers, was actually telling the truth. He was innocent. He hadn't been involved in the robbery. And two other men would later be convicted. In 2014, Gary Robert Evers was convicted of that first degree murder and sentenced to life without parole, where he died in prison eight years later. And he is literally the only person who has come close to being a suspect in Diane's disappearance. And that leaves us to where we are today. This is a cold case, it really needs attention. And it seems to me that the police really need to start releasing information because there's not a whole lot out there. Someone knows something. Someone saw something. Maybe they need to jog their memory. It's got to be assumed that Diane was hitchhiking. Someone must have picked her up. So what do you think happened? Do you think that Diane left of her own free will? Do you think that maybe she's still alive today? Perhaps she was sick of being in and out of hospitals. Perhaps her addictions got the best of her. Maybe she's out there somewhere, lost amongst the population of addicts who unfortunately never got the help they needed. And what do you make of these two bags of clothing discovered? It can't be a coincidence, can it? Do you think Diane left them there for her family? Or do you think that someone is leaving them behind to taunt them? I'd love to hear what you think. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we're going to be walking through this case over on the Serial Society discussion group. So make sure you're in there to join the chat. Just search for Serial Society True Crime Discussion Group on Facebook or you can check the link in my show notes. I would like to once again thank tonight's sponsor. Make sure you schedule your servicing today at OBriandor.comslash schedule. Keep your home safe by keeping your garage working. As for me, if you want to reach out, you can find me over on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. And if you're watching on YouTube, I'd love if you can give me a thumbs up and subscribe. If you'd like to become a Patreon and unlock some badass bonuses like ad-free exclusive episodes, free swag, and so much more, visit patreon.com slash Until next time, don't be a dommer. Bye.